listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Before we move into the readings, I want to take a moment to thank you for all the ways you've supported and encouraged me as I went through the ordination process. It's been an eventful five years, and I am endlessly grateful for each one of you. Most of you will know that I was ordained as a priest about two weeks ago, but what you may not know is that June 17th was already an important date for me. Four years ago on that day, I completed the Camino Santiago pilgrimage route across northern Spain. A pilgrimage can be a literal journey to a physical place, but it's also common to use the idea of pilgrimage as a metaphor to describe our daily lives. People casually talk about their lives as a journey, and we devour stories like the Lord of the Rings and the Wizard of Oz. There are lots of references to pilgrimages in the Bible as well. You could even say it's one of the main themes of the Bible, it's that common. It's there, but it's subtle, one of those themes you could easily overlook. I've been reading the Bible for as long as I can read, and I've never really noticed all the references to pilgrimages, at least until I did notice them, and then I couldn't believe it took me so long to see them. For example, scholars note that Luke frames his entire gospel narrative in the context of a pilgrimage. N.T. Wright observes that traveling in obedience to God's call is one of Luke's central pictures for what it means to be a Christian. Following Jesus is what it's all about. Jesus' contemporaries would also have been familiar with the stories of the pilgrimages of their ancestors, stories like the Exodus when their ancestors traveled from Egypt to the Promised Land. They would have known about Ruth and Naomi's pilgrimage to Bethlehem, They would have sung the series of psalms that speak directly to the idea that our lives are a journey and are commonly referred to as the pilgrim psalms. They would also likely have their own personal experience of pilgrimage. Jewish people who lived in Galilee regularly went on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, a journey that would take about three or four days. A lot of the action in Luke occurs as Jesus and his followers are on that pilgrimage to Jerusalem Neil Elliott has observed that all that Jesus teaches about justice, about the right use of wealth, about prayer and steadfastness in his cause, he teaches as he leads his followers towards a final confrontation in Jerusalem. Our reading from Luke begins, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus has his game face on, his do not mess with me face, his nothing is going to get in my way face. I have a friend whose face gets like that whenever she decides it's her turn to pay for dinner, and whenever that happens, I always let her pay. There is no point arguing. (laughs) Jesus is going to Jerusalem by way of Samaria, and that's an odd choice, given that Jews and Samaritans aren't supposed to get along. Most Jewish people in Galilee would have avoided going through Samaria by walking along the Jordan Valley and beginning the ascent to Jerusalem at Jericho. By the way, have you ever noticed that a lot of older churches are built in such a way that you have to climb a set of stairs to get inside and then another set of stairs to get to the altar? All Saints is built like that. 
The purpose of this design choice isn't simply to frustrate people with mobility issues, although I'm sure it does frustrate them. It's designed to mimic the fact that in order to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, you had to climb up a hill. Jesus is determined. He has set his face towards Jerusalem, and nothing is going to get in his way. Well, some things may get in his way. Luke tells us that Jesus sent scouts ahead of him who went to the Samaritan village to prepare things for his arrival, but they did not receive him because he had set his face towards Jerusalem. Our reading doesn't make this clear, but it's possible that Jesus has been spending time and gaining a following in Samaria. He may not simply be passing through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem. He may have already been there for quite some time. This is suggested by the story in John of the Samaritan woman at the well. In that story, Jesus and a woman from Samaria have an in-depth theological discussion, and one of the things that woman discusses with Jesus is the correct location for worship. Samaritans believed it was Mount Gerizim, while Jewish people believed it was the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus explained that this debate no longer matters because he has come to bring about a new way of worshiping God that is not dependent on location. The Samaritan woman believes this is truly good news, and she becomes one of the first evangelists sharing the gospel with her neighbors. If people in Samaria have begun to hear and believe this good news, Jesus' choice to go to Jerusalem would be confusing. Hey, Jesus, after years of hearing our Jewish neighbors say that Jerusalem is better than Mount Gerizim, you came along and said that location didn't matter, and we believed you. But now, now you're going to privilege Jerusalem by traveling there? Are you kidding me? This pilgrimage to Jerusalem might seem like a betrayal. It might very well be why they are angry enough that they refuse to offer Jesus hospitality. Whatever the reason... The villagers won't receive Jesus, and James and John are not impressed. They turn to Jesus and say, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? So I have a couple of questions for the disciples. But the first one is, what makes James and John so sure they are capable of calling down fire from heaven? It's pretty confident of them. We don't have any stories that indicate this is something they've ever been able to do. Calling down fire from heaven to destroy a village isn't something we've seen Jesus do, let alone one of his followers. But James and John offer to do just that as if they are sure they can and as if they believe Jesus will appreciate the offer, as if they are doing Jesus a favor. It's like they're saying, step aside, Jesus, and let us handle this one. We've been waiting our whole lives for a chance to smite some Samaritans. Um, Where does that kind of profound confidence, overconfidence, come from? I have no idea. But there will be no burned villages or villagers this day. Jesus rebukes James and John, and the pilgrimage continues. Incidentally, if you ever decide to walk the Camino de Santiago, the way of St. James, it is this James's burial space you are purported to be walking to. He may seem like a bit of a mess now, but James does learn along the way and eventually becomes a man worthy of admiration. As Jesus and his disciples continue their journey to Jerusalem, Luke describes a series of encounters with three different people along the way. Now, before we look at those interactions, there's a couple of things I think we need to keep in mind. Firstly, these three people 
are individual people, and when Jesus interacts with them, he is interacting with them as unique individuals at a unique point in his earthly ministry. Remember that Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem. He is a man with a mission that will require all of his focus and concentration. There is no time for anything or anyone who will try and distract him from doing what he knows he needs to do. And if we want to follow him on this road, we need to be equally focused. I had a great number of adventures on the Camino, but I also turned down an equally large number of them because I needed to be in Santiago by a particular date. By saying yes to the Camino, I had to say no to other things. I had to say no to good things, important things even, because they conflicted with the thing I had said yes to. When Jesus meets three people along the way, they all say they want to follow him, but Jesus tests them to make sure their yes is really a yes. Do they understand what they will have to say no to in order to say yes to following Jesus? The first man Jesus meets says, I will follow you wherever you go, which is a pretty audacious statement, and you've got to admire this guy's confidence or overconfidence. I mean, really? You're going to follow Jesus wherever he goes? How can you even say such a thing when you have absolutely no idea where he's going? This journey ends with death on a cross. Are you sure you're prepared for that? We make audacious statements like this all the time. When we sign leases or job contracts, in church services, marriage liturgies, ordinations, will you obey your bishop? I will. And I mean it. And I have no idea what that means. <laughs> and while it's impossible to fully understand what we're agreeing to in those moments, in a healthy process, the person we are pledging such unfailing loyalty to should do their best to let us know something of what we are getting ourselves into. And Jesus does just that. He says to this man, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. These are some of the conditions of following Jesus. Saying yes to following Jesus on the pilgrim road is also saying no to security, safety, and stability. Jesus directly asks the next person he meets to follow him, and this man is willing to do so on one condition. First, let me go and bury my father. But Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Um, which sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Now, it's not clear what the man meant by, let me go and bury my father. Has his father literally just died and is about to be buried? Is he near death? Or does the man simply mean that he won't be able to follow Jesus until some unspecified point in the future when his father is no longer living? We don't know. What we do know is that it was a sacred Jewish obligation to make sure you made your father's burial your top priority. It was more important than even saying your daily prayers. So Jesus' statement that the man should let the dead bury the dead would certainly have caught people's attention. The man's willingness to follow Jesus is conditional, and that just doesn't work anymore. You can't put something or someone ahead of Jesus. You can't say, my first priority is to bury my father, and then I'll follow you. And I like to think that this issue, this idea of priorities, is what Jesus is speaking to rather than literally condemning the importance of burying a family member. 
and uh, church tradition seems to agree because some of our most beautiful liturgies are funeral liturgies. Jesus is on an urgent, time-sensitive mission. He can't be distracted or allow anything to get in his way, and he needs the people around him to be similarly focused. In times like this, our priorities need to shift, and some things that are normally highly valued need to be put on the back burner. Kalen Falk once said to me, I mean, Sabbath is truly important, and we should all practice it, but if your house catches fire on the Sabbath, you need to stop resting and get to work getting everyone out of the house. Then a third person comes forward wanting to conditionally follow Jesus. I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. I will follow you, but first let me bury my father. I will follow you, but first let me say farewell. Again, there's a desire to follow Jesus, but not to make following Jesus the top priority. And Jesus uses an interesting metaphor to explain why this just doesn't work. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not sure if anyone in this room has ever tried to plow a field by hand. I certainly haven't. But basically, it's a task that requires you to focus on where you're going, not on where you've been. If you focus on a spot straight ahead of you, like where you intend to wind up, you can create a fairly straight row. But if you keep looking behind you, you won't. You have to choose to keep looking forward in order to be effective. Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. There is no looking back and he needs the people who will join him on this pilgrimage to have the same level of focus. There are times to look behind you. There are times to rest and to care for your family, and there are times to set your face towards Jerusalem and make sure that nothing distracts you from that purpose. Whenever you say yes to something, you are inevitably saying no to something else. It's interesting to me that the only people who receive a rebuke from Jesus in this passage are the disciples who want to bring down judgment on others whose choices differ from theirs. It's also interesting that Luke doesn't tell us what the three men decide to do. Do they return to their families? Do they bury that father? Do they follow Jesus on the road to Jerusalem? What are the things you are saying a conscious yes and no to in your life? What are you saying yes and no to without being fully aware you are doing so? Does any of that need to shift? And if so, how? May you be gentle with yourself as you reflect, curious about what you discover, and inspired to say yes fully and without conditions. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.